Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 is through 2030 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, on the row in front of you. You can also grab one of our scripture journals that are out in the narthex, on the table out there to the left, when you make a left through the doors. Um, those are very handy. They have the scripture on the left, and, the, and note-taking can happen on the right. We continue our way through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. A few things to give us review, just to remind us, this is a letter... Um, in which Paul is writing to this young church that he established probably about 10 years to 12 years earlier. And we read about him first coming to Philippi in Acts chapter 16, where he meets Lydia, where he meets the Philippian jailer when he's in jail. Um, And so we're about a decade, a little more than a decade past that, and he's writing to them as he is in jail in Rome, as he's awaiting Caesar's judgment as to whether or not he's going to live or die. And we see that come through in the first chapter as he's talking about it's better for me to be here alive because I can write to you, I can minister, I can share the gospel. Um, it's better currently, he would eventually, he wants to go be with Jesus, which is the best outcome. But remember, he's writing from jail. He's writing incarcerated. He's writing under house arrest. And he's writing to encourage them, and to remind them of the joy we have in the gospel. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. It says, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, driving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would your word do a work in our hearts this morning? As we read it and as I preach it, Father, would you be speaking through your word? Holy Spirit, would you be convicting? Would you be transforming us with the gospel this morning? As we contemplate your word, would it inspect our hearts? So would we come to it with humility? Change us and draw us near through your grace and through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, when I say the word decadent, decadent, what images come to mind for you? Maybe for some of you, it's a New York cheesecake, right? Decadent. Or chocolate cake. Or when you think of decadent, maybe you think of an elaborate party ballroom with men in black tuxes and women in ballroom dresses. Maybe you're thinking of the great Gatsby, roaring 20s type of imagery comes to mind. Decadent, something that is decadent, over the top, luxurious. It is all that. But if you look up the word in a dictionary, decadence can also mean moral and cultural decline because of excessive indulgence, pleasure, and luxury. Right? So moral and cultural decline because of 
indulgence and luxury. I think it's true we live in a decadent society. Especially when you compare our society to other previous centuries. In the words of Jacques Barzun, he says, A decadent society is a very active time, full of deep concerns, but particularly restless. For it sees no clear lines of advance. Particularly restless. Doesn't that define our time? The loss it faces is that of possibility. It has no possibility. It has no hopes and dreams. The forms of art as of life seem exhausted. The stages of development have been run through. Institutions function painfully. Repetition and frustration are the intolerable result. Boredom and fatigue are great historical forces. That's a definition of a decadent society. You have everything you need. All your comforts are met. There's no desperation. There's no struggle. We're all comfortable. And so therefore, there's no hope. There's no possibility, he says. Well, it's into this decadent world that we are called by the Apostle Paul to have a particular manner of life as Christians. He says that in verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word, that phrase there, manner of life, translates actually citizenship. Your manner of citizenship. And so just as he'll do in chapter 3, Paul is reminding us that our supreme citizenship is our eternal heavenly citizenship. That we're, we're passerbys in this world. We're just coming through. We're sojourners in the city. We're on the way to another country, another city. We're only here temporarily. That's what he's trying to communicate. And while we're here, during our stay, our temporary stay here, we're called to live as citizens of our true nationality, our eternal kingdom, our heavenly nationality. Therefore, our conduct must convey the transforming reality of the message we proclaim. Let me say that again. Our conduct must convey the transforming reality of the message we proclaim. Because your conduct in this world communicates what you believe about the gospel. The gospel impacts and transforms how we live, how we talk, the jokes we tell, the TV shows we watch, the movies we watch, the articles we share, the way we treat our spouses and our children. The gospel is not just a box we check. It's news. It's good news that transforms every part of your life. That's what Paul means here. And it's also the gospel that gives us joy. He's been going on and on about rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. We live in a certain way, but we also do it with joy. We don't just do it. We're not just walking around like we've just been at a funeral. We're not marked by gloom and doom. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., he was a member of the U.S. Supreme Court for 30 years. And at one point, I got this quote from Alistair Begg. He always has the good quotes, funny quotes. He says at one, this is Oliver Wendell Holmes, says at one point in his life, 
Justice Holmes explained his choice of career by saying, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. If I ever look and act like an undertaker, please let me know. But we also, when I say joy, we don't also have to just always be positive, positive encouraging K-Love all the time. No offense to K-Love. <clears throat> Good music there. But it, it's not, we don't just put on a happy face. Joy is something deeper. It's something that grounds you. It's something that drives you forward as a Christian through tragedy, through difficulty. So here's what I need to do before I tell you what to do. I need to remind you of who you are in Jesus before I tell you what you are to do for Jesus and in Jesus. I need to remind you of who you are, what your identity is. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You can't live in a manner worthy of the gospel if you think the gospel is about good behavior so that you'll end up in a good place. The gospel is about you being saved from your bad behavior by a Savior who was good in your place. That's the gospel. So before we turn this passage into a a to-do list to keep a right standing before God, let's remember the good news of God's gracious initiation. That he sent Jesus to save us, not help us. To save us. He sent Jesus to rescue us, not to give us a list of rules to keep. We must be amazed. If we're going to do what this passage says, we must be amazed at the perfect righteousness of Jesus that is ours by faith. By trusting that everything Jesus did was sufficient to save you and welcome you in. There's no earning going on here. And so it's with that that we must ask, what is Paul calling the church at Philippi and us to do? Well, this is where in a decadence, declining society, they were too. This was the Roman Empire. This was, this was at a time when the Roman Empire was at its, was its greatest. It would decline and it would uh, be overtaken several hundred years later, but they had it pretty easy. They were commanding and controlling most of the known world. And so he was in, writing into a declining, a decadent society just like ours. So what, what is it that we're to do? Well, the main idea this morning is, is the good news of Jesus produces a transformed life of solidarity and suffering with other believers. Right? The, the gospel produces a transformed life of solidarity and suffering with other believers. We're going to see that in three ways. Three things we're called to do, that together we stand Together we're strong, and together we suffer. So first let's look at that idea in verse 27, that together together we stand. He says in the beginning here, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So going back, he says, Whether I come to see you or am absent. Remember, that's his dilemma. Paul's not sure of what his fate's going to be. He's not sure if he's going to get out of jail or not. So what he's telling them is, now remember, I don't know if I'm going to be here again, so I want you to remember these things. I want you to follow this instruction. Whether I'm there or I'm absent, I might hear that you're standing firm. Standing firm. That's a, that's a, a phrase he likes to use. It's a military phrase. There's probably retired military 
Roman military in, his, in the church there. And so they would have connected with this, this type of phrase. To stand firm. He uses that phrase several times in Ephesians 6 in the armor of God passage. He says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore. He says it again and again. That is what we're called to do. We're called to stand firm as God's people. But not just that, we're to do it in one spirit. He says, may I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. What does he mean by spirit there? There's some debate as to whether he's talking about a little s spirit or capital S, Holy Spirit. I'm on the side that he's, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, that we are linked as believers by the Holy Spirit, that we stand together, we stand firm because of God the Holy Spirit working in and through us. It's a thread that joins us together. It's the unseen reality that is here in the midst of us, the Holy Spirit joining us together. It's linked to that promise that that Jesus gives us in John 17, the high priestly prayer. He says that they, the church, would become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. The world knows that we are in God and that Jesus came from God because of the the unity the church has. The more unified the church is, the more the world will see that. That's what Jesus is saying. So the question for us this morning, are you passionate about the purity and the peace of the church? If you're a member of this church or any PCA church, you make a vow to submit to church leadership. It's one way you keep the unity. And you maintain and study the purity and peace of the church. That that is is our highest goal, that we would maintain peace and purity as a church. Because we're in one spirit. He also says we should be in one mind. Verse 27, I may hear of you that you're standing in one spirit with one mind. What does he mean there? One mind, that we we are using our, our energies, our intellectual energies, to keep the main thing the main thing. And so what is that main thing? Well, if you read through the Gospels, if you read through the letters of Paul, Jesus and the Gospel is that main thing. We want to keep Jesus at the forefront in our church. We want to keep the Gospel the most important thing. And so we, do we do that? Or do we get tripped up in side issues, secondary, third-level doctrines, that we, that we rise too high to the first level? There's a real problem in our day, broadly in our culture, but also in the church and online especially, of tribalism. We too easily splinter into tribes, into factions. You see that if you have a Facebook account, if you have Twitter, you'll see that very quickly. And you know what that's a sign of? A decadent culture. When you split off into tribes and factions, that's a sign of decadence, and it's a decadence in the church. It's a decadence we're allowing into the church, a decline where we're focused on less important things. Paul and Titus reminds us, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. This is Titus 3, 9 through 11. And he tells us what to do to a person who's in the church and who's stirring up division. He says, 
as a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He took it so seriously, Paul did, that if there is a divider in the church and you warn him once and twice and he's not repenting, have nothing more to do with him. You know, there's a temptation in our churches that we need to push back and resist against, and that is to treat one another as enemies. To treat one another as enemies. To be so beholden to our way, to our agenda. And if that agenda is not Jesus, we need to hold it loosely. We need to hold it loosely. And so he reminds us to, to be of one spirit, one mind, and then we need to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. It's this imagery of a, a, and, and war, a military, linking shoulder to shoulder with their shields, pushing back against the enemy. It's a, this whole passage is strikingly similar to Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul writes in verses 1 through 6, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. See what he's saying there? It takes effort. This doesn't come easy, doesn't come naturally to maintain unity. But he says to maintain it in the bond of peace. And here in Ephesians 4, he reminds us of what we have. We're one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's through all, over all, through all, and in all. See, the temptation the church often has is, is we let opposition divide us. When we're feeling pressure, when we're feeling pressure from the outside into the church, sometimes there's a temptation to divide each other and to see each other as the enemy. I may have told you years ago this, but we were, Hannah and I were given the advice, marriage advice early on, and it's said in tongue in cheek, but when you, have, when you start having kids, the Lord blesses you with children, see them as the enemy. See your kids as the enemy. And that's been really helpful, honestly. <laughs> we love our kids. I love them. Would die for my kids. But I won't let them get in between me and my wife. <laughs> because they will. They'll try to. They'll try to wedge in between. And the world can do that to the church as well. We can let the world infiltrate our minds, our social media feeds, and start to divide us into tribes where we get, we attack each other, and we forget who the quote-unquote enemy is. Let's remember that. And, and what does this all lead us to in verse 27? We strive side by side. Why? For the faith of the gospel. He's just telling us what the main thing is, right? You strive for the faith of the gospel. That's the main thing. We exist, our, our mission, our vision statement here at Hope is we exist as a loving, caring church that glorifies God by impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Essentially what I just read, verse 27. That is why we exist. That's our mission. We exist for the faith of the gospel. But there is a question we need to address, especially in our our day and age where there has been a lot of hurt in the church. How do we stick with the church when we've been hurt by the church? 
How do we stick with the church when there's been pain? When there's been grievances? Well, when there's been real abuse in the church, which there has been, physical, sexual, spiritual, that's, that's traumatic. That's awful. But a word to those people is don't forget that Jesus will bring purifying judgment on the church first. That as First Peter says, judgment begins in the household of God. There will be justice. There will be judgment on perpetrators of, of uh, injustice. But secondly, for all who've been hurt by the church, we need to resist the urge to pull away, to pull away from the church. We need to resist that urge. Isolation away from the church is worse than conflict within the church. Isolation away from the church is worse than conflict in the church because at least when you're having conflict in the church, there is hope for resolution and reconciliation and grace. That is the whole point of having conflict is that the grace of God and forgiveness would be shown and the gospel be preached all the more clearly. But when you isolate from the church, there's no hope of that. You've removed yourself. So we need to stick with the church, even when there's been hurt, even when there's been pain. So together we stand. Secondly, in our text, verse 28, together we're strong. Together we're strong. Verse 28, he says, Stand side by side for the faith of the gospel and not be frightened in anything by your opponents. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. Together we're strong. When I came to this verse, maybe it's because we're near Christmas. We've been watching Christmas movies and we watched Home Alone recently. But I'm reminded of when Kevin McAllister yells out into the the darkness in in front of his home, I'm not afraid anymore. And of course, the old man with the snow shovel walks out from the shadows and he, he screams, ah! There's a lot of good screaming in that movie. But what does Kevin realize later in that movie, in Home Alone 1, is that he needed the old man to help him fight against the robbers. He couldn't do it by himself. He may not have been frightened anymore, but he truly was. He just said that. He needed his help. And therefore, we need a church around us to not be afraid anymore. Why? Because it's hard to go against the stream. It's hard to be the outcast, to be ostracized. You young people today, you teenagers, you know this more than anyone else probably in this room because it's fresh in your mind. You know what it's like to be ostracized. Perhaps maybe even for your faith or the way you've been living as a Christian. You know what it's like to be pushed out for not going with the crowd. So I just want to encourage you, young people, today that when you come here on Sunday morning, you're surrounded by people that are committed to you and your faith in the gospel. As the world pressures you to live for yourself and to forget God, we're here to say to you, teenagers and young people, you're not crazy for your faith. The world might want to think you're crazy or tell you you're crazy, but God and his word and his truth is worth it. It's worth it. And we're here with you to surround you. And at school, you'll be made fun of for what you believe, maybe. 
You'll be called names, maybe. You'll be gossiped about. You'll be lied about. But remember, your church stands with you. We stand with you. And remember, as we continue to face a a culture that is hostile to the gospel, remember that we believe in a gospel that's historical. It happened. These are actual events in history. It's logical, meaning it makes sense. It's rational. And it's empirical. It can be put to the test. You can live your Christian life out, and it can be, you can see the fruit of it. It is empirical. It's believable. It's trustworthy. You're not crazy to be a Christian. And Paul actually gives them encouragement about this in verse 28. He says, don't be frightened of anything by your opponents, because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Their opposite, your strength and their opposition is actually evidence of their ultimate destruction. Dennis Johnson says, he does not underestimate the gravity of the opponent's evil. Paul doesn't underestimate their evil. In fact, he states it soberly that their aggression towards God's Christ's people is a signal that those opponents are on their way to eternal destruction. He's saying their evil in and of themselves is showing that destruction is their future. Because truth be told, there's always going to be opposition to the truth of the gospel. There's always going to be opposition to it. You know, why? Because the gospel strikes at our self-sufficient pride. Right? And, and unless you've been humbled by the gospel, you will not like it because it strikes at your pride. It strikes at your self-sufficiency. But we shouldn't be surprised that those people do not like it. We hate it, and we hate those who propagate it in our nature. Alistair Begg says, those who hate the gospel will learn to despise those who love the gospel. Those who hate the gospel will learn to despise those who love the gospel. Man in his nature is not simply apathetic to the gospel, but is antagonistic to the gospel. We're antagonistic to the gospel. So the caution for us today is if all we want is to be liked, it will be hard to honor the Lord in this area of our lives. If that is what controls us, to be liked, it's going to be hard to honor God. And so you might be thinking, what, well, I look, I've failed the Lord in this area. I have not been the best representative of the gospel of God in my, at my school or at my work. I've failed. Where do we turn Well, here's the good news, is the Lord always takes us in. He always forgives us. He always wants us back, even if we failed him. Think particularly of Peter. Peter had turned his back on Jesus during his trial and right leading up to his crucifixion. He said he didn't know him. He rejected him. But what happened days days later? Jesus sits down with him at breakfast on the beach and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Secondly, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. He drew him back. He called him back into the ministry. He was an apostle. He led the church. Even if we haven't had a perfect track record, he'll always use us, always take us back in. 
So together we are strong. Thirdly, in our last point this morning, together we suffer. Together we suffer. Well, just when you thought it was going to make a turn for me, really positive and encouraging message, together we suffer. <laughs> That's the third point. Together we suffer. But I'm going, to, I'm going to give you some positivity toward the end. He says in verse 29, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering, it's granted to you as a gift. What do you think about that? Just like as you're looking forward to opening your gifts on Christmas morning, you get the gift of suffering. You get the gift of suffering. It's been granted to you, Paul said. It's been given to you. A wonderful gift. And so the truth is it's going to happen, yes. Really, suffering. And here he's talking about not just suffering like we all do physically, but but persecution. 2 Timothy, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. There it is. Will be persecuted. It's in black and white. In Acts 5, the disciples, the apostles, it says when they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They saw it as an honor to suffer for the Lord, to be persecuted. Why is that? Why that strange reaction in the, in the Bible of believers to suffering? Well, they saw, and we need to remember, that suffering is a gift intended to draw us closer to the Lord. That's why it's there. Suffering keeps us on our knees, keeps us humble. But it also connects us to our suffering Savior, Jesus. Dennis Johnson says, as you realize more deeply how God has used Jesus' suffering to bring you everlasting joy, you begin to have surprising reactions to your own suffering. Meaning, the more you think about Jesus' suffering and what it's brought you, the gift of salvation, you strangely think, you think about your own suffering differently. You're willing to go through suffering because he went through it for you. And so as we face suffering, all we need to do is fear God. If we fear God more than anything else, we'll have nothing else to fear. Let fear of God trump everything else. If death is the worst thing they can do to you, and Jesus has already conquered death, then, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, then we can suffer with kindness and love and humility and boldness because we know our case is settled. We know where we're going. There's nothing more they can do to us than kill us. He says, suffer for his sake. For the sake of Christ, you don't, you don't only believe in him, but you also suffer for him. Our sufferings, friends, points people to the suffering Savior. They see Christ in you when you suffer well. Paul says this amazing statement in Colossians 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, because in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction." always that that verse always confused me what is lacking in christ's afflictions paul what's lacking in what christ has done he's not saying anything in and of itself of what christ has done is lacking but what he's saying is the presentation of christ's sufferings is lacking where people don't see it and so when missionaries go and suffer on the on the mission field when we suffer and are persecuted at our job or at school 
they get to see the sufferings of Christ on display. We get to show the Savior to other people. And so belief will produce suffering. And so what does that look like in the church? It, it, it doesn't mean we suffer like a stoic without any emotion. We grieve. We mourn over suffering and we mourn together. We grieve together as a church. That's one function of how we do that well and suffer together. And that happens all over the world. And I think the American church, we need to learn from the rest of the world who does that, who does go through suffering and persecution. Because that may be our future one day. And so that's where he ends, meaning he points us to the fact that we're at war. Verse 30, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We're engaged in a conflict, aren't we? We're in wartime as Christians. We're not in peacetime. We're at war. Don't be tricked into thinking that you're in peace right now between you and the world and you and Satan. No, they're, they're attacking. They're, they're warring against you. Well, if we've got Christ, we've got everything. We can do anything for him. Charles Taylor Studd, I want to close with this. Charles Taylor Studd, C.T. Studd, was a British Anglican Christian missionary to China. And he was part of the Cambridge Seven. And later he was responsible for setting up the Heart of Africa mission, which became the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade. And I want to end with this quote from him. He says, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I can ever make for him could ever be too great. Let me say that again. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I could ever make for him could ever be too great. Friends, Jesus paid it all. He went all the way to death. He suffered in your place. And the worst thing that can happen to us is death. Because after death, we get glory and we're with Jesus forever. C.T. Studd said one more memorable quote, and I have it in my office. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word how it reorients us to what is ultimately true about ourselves and about the world we live in and about your church. Have us remember the fact that we need the church. Have us remember the fact that we cannot thrive in our faith without our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how we will endure. That's how we will grow. Give us the courage to proclaim the goodness and grace of Jesus to this world around us and build us up in that true identity of being his children. In his name we pray, amen.